right, let's settle in and look at the Word of God in some detail. It will be somewhat fleeting in terms of the speed, so we're going to have to turn on our fast listening device as well. But uh, we are reaching the penultimate of what it is to be a priest unto the Most High God. And before we engage that subject, let's just go to his throne and seek his special guidance in touching our hearts that we may see who he is and who we are in relationship to him. Let's pray. Again, our Holy Father, we come into your presence to just glorify you, Father, with hearts that desire to honor you, to obey you, to love you, to be closely related to you. Father, as we open your word and look at what you have done for us and where you have placed us in relationship to yourself and where you yourself, through your Holy Spirit, have placed yourself into us as we have been called out by you to be your special people, showing forth your excellencies, your grace, your righteousness to the world. Father, may we see what that is. And Father, how we should then live because of what you have done for us and where you have placed us. Father, to that end, we commit ourselves on this evening's study. Father, that we would truly honor you with what we think and what we say and what we do. All of this we present to you through that great high priest sitting at your right hand, Jesus Christ, the Lord, the Messiah, the Anointed One, your Son. Father, through him and in his name we pray. Amen. The subject that we will try to address with a, a degree of, of not just finality, but reaching the highest peak of what it is to be related to God. And just in way of review, I want to just do a bit of a personal self-correction. Uh, I'll do what they call a declination of my compass. I want to adjust it from roughly nine degrees off of true north and put it back on the true north. And let the Word and the Holy Spirit speak to our hearts tonight as we gain a sharper focus and understanding of what it is to be a believer priest in this day and age. And just a brief look of what it will be to be a believer priest in the age to come. 
So just to set the stage and review where we have been, as we have stated uh, earlier, as, as Bubba has spent a good deal of time to lay out the track of what it is, the priesthood from the very beginning of creation with Adam and his role as believer through Abel, through Noah, through Abraham, certainly King David. We don't want to miss out on the high priesthood, the royal high priesthood of Melchizedek, the king of righteousness by name, king of Salem. The practice of the Levitical priesthood according to the law that God gave to Moses in Sinai, all the way down through the Old Testament where the prophets spoke of priests, all the way down to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. And as we mentioned last week, there was a, a 400-year period of separation before Jesus the sent Son of God came forth into this world to begin his ministry. And just as a point, I'm sure Bubba did point this out, that Jesus began his early ministry at the age of 30. And that is no coincidence that that is the age in which a priest of the Aaronic or Levitical priesthood began their priestly service, was at the age of 30. And he has started a new institution. He, Jesus Christ, has called out another group, called his body, the ecclesia, the church. And he is the cornerstone, and we are the little living stones. And we have been rescued from God's wrath, his judgment against sin, and we, by the very grace of God through Jesus Christ, have been rescued from the slavery to sin to be called royal and holy priests. Now, what does that really mean? And more to the point that we want to develop tonight with your, with your help and your participation is all that he has done for us he has caused us to be holy. Our key, one of our key verses for tonight is to be holy as he is holy. We are priests. So what does it mean? This is the question to you. What does it mean to be holy as he is holy? We see that repeated in Leviticus chapter 11, and Peter picks it up again in his, his first epistle. Chapter 1, verse 16, be holy as I am holy, as he is holy. What does that mean? How, do, how are we holy? Anybody have any idea at this point what it is to be holy? That's a start. That's a, that's, that's, that's a good idea. But in, in a very practical sense, as you have an understanding of it right now, what do we 
do? What do we not do? What do we really need to do to be holy as he is holy? How do we, how do we put rubber on, uh, on those tires and make it move? How do, how do we be holy? So how, how, that's a starting point, but how would you, if you were talking to your neighbor, you're talking to, to Tulio, how would you explain to, to him what it is to be holy? What, what would be your choice of Bible verses, your choice of language? What is it that you would say to define what it is to be holy as he is holy. Let me give you, uh, I'm not sure if this is a, a good clue, but let me just put it out there. What is the definition of holiness? How would you describe it? Once we have a de definition of what it is, then we may find words to express it to others. So what? how would we define the word holy. Being in his presence. Okay? And you're, you're on to something there, uh, White. Set apart in, 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 in what way? How, how, would, how would he be set apart that we would call it holy. Okay. Okay. Now, let me throw out another interesting clue. It has to do with the past in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, or pardon me, 4. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's repeated only one other time in Revelation chapter 4. Holy, holy, holy. Set apart. What, how is he, God, set apart? And we need to understand that if we are to be holy as he is holy, how do we do that? What is it that we're, we, you've, we've warmed up a little bit, but we haven't nailed what it is to be holy? Say again. Sinless, okay? So, praying without ceasing. What else? All of these are points. You're, 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 on, you're on track. What else? Okay. How we live. All right. We're if you're asking how we can be holy, cannot. Yeah. Unless, unless we are in Christ and we are set apart by God. But we cannot be holy, so that is the right requirement. Can't do it all right. Certainly. 
that's Martin Hunt. You were going to say something. So, the word holy usually is defined as separated. Something is separated unto itself. And what would you say would be the key characteristic that is uniquely special to God himself? Perfection. Is triune. But if, if you had one word that would describe the, the greatest asset of all of his assets, what one word would you use to capture who and what he is? A satiety, but well, he's without beginning. So, so yeah. Uh, a satiety, say it again, uh, Bubba. Self-existing, that's a city. We're close, but that word aside, what is the one other word that we just repeated several times? Holy, holy, holy. That is the one characteristic that sets him apart from everything else. And yet, it is that very characteristic that he has called us to be holy as he is holy. And that's, that's our point that we want to focus on in terms of how we become holy as he is holy. Let me give this as a simple, condensed um, definition of holy. Simply put, holy is a place or something where God dwells. Now, that begs a question. If that is the definition of holy, and he is holy, and he is thrice holy, what we call the trishagion, that's a, an official fancy theological term for holy, 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 what, what qualifies us to be holy as he is holy? What, what has happened to us? that we were once slaves to sin. We have received by grace, through faith, that salvation, that rescue from God's wrath towards sin. What happens? We're born again. We're born of the Spirit of God, are we not? Yeah, and what, what happens when we are born by God's Spirit, what is the thing that, that Jesus is sharing with Nicodemus uh, as to how he is to be born again? And then we see how Paul picks it up again in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. What's the thing that makes us very unique? It's a gift. But think of the Old Testament. Where did God dwell in the tabernacle, or pardon me, in the wilderness. He dwelt in the tabernacle, right? Later on, the Holy of Holies was built into the temple, and the Shekinah glory of God 
dwelt on the mercy seat of the Holy of Holies. And we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. That's it. That's precisely it. There, his Shekinah glory in the desert, cloud by day, pillar of fire by night, dwelt in the holy place, the holy of holies, in the tabernacle. Likewise, the, he dwelt in the holy place of the temple. No Shekinah glory in terms of cloud and fire. But now, with the new institution called the church, the called-out assembly, that Jesus, the chief cornerstone, has put into place, that calling out places us into him as his kin, as his, his born of his spirit and of his blood, washed in his blood. But Hoyt has put it right on target. We are now the living headquarters of God's spirit on an individual basis. And that presence of his Holy Spirit is what gives us the right, the privilege, and the responsibility to be holy as he is holy. Because as we saw last week, we have been called out, Peter says, as a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a special people of God to do service unto him. We are now in a position to practice the servant, the suffering servant role of the high priest to be a mediator for man to God and for God to man. And we are beseeched to be holy as he is holy. And why? You've answered it. Because we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. Each and every one of us, by being born of his Spirit, we have been sealed into him by his Spirit, and we are now indwelt by him. We are the living temple. Say that one more time. Would it be a fair characterization to ask each and every one of us, do we really understand and do we really appreciate the significance of the fact that God's Holy Spirit indwells us? Uh, when you compare that to the exercise that the priests of the Old Testament order had to go through to remain pure and holy just to approach God. That was, their, that was their livelihood. That was their commission. That was their dedication. They had to remain holy and pure just to enter into the presence of God. And even more particular... What happened on that special day of atonement? 
who could go in and look and service the sacrifice, the sprinkling of the blood on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies with a rope tied around him because if he messed up, he was struck dead and they had to get that, that death contamination, that uncleanness out of there. And now with all of that ritual, all of that liturgy, all of that fine point adherence to the law, the Levitical law of the priesthood, we have now been called out in this age of grace, saved by grace through faith, not works of ourselves, not that we should boast, and we are indwelled with the Holy Spirit. We have been called into a royal priesthood and we're supposed to live like it because we're supposed to be holy as he is holy. And so my, my point of laboring this is to get us to focus on how should we individually live to be holy as he is holy. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Now, admittedly, the believer's priesthood in the age in which we now live, where we are right here and right now, in view of what we know from the, the New Covenant, the New Testament, relatively speaking, we don't have the explicit instructions in the Torah or the Levitical instruction of what it is to be holy. Now we certainly, the first time we learn that we are royal priests is from Peter, but we know from the writer, the author of, the, uh, of Hebrews that from chapter four through chapter seven, lots of priestly things are alluded to and clearly stated. And in the rest of the epistles, and certainly even in the gospels, certain practices were identified that are very priestly in function, but they are never really called out as priestly functions. So let's go forward just a bit in the age to come in the book of Revelation and use that as a, a mirror to reflect back to where we live right now as to how we should then live to be holy as he is holy. Look at uh, Revelation chapter 1. And verse 6 is a start. And I'm reading from the King James. And this is the apocalypse of the Lord to the Apostle John. In verse 6 of chapter 1, And he hath made us kings 
and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Clearly stated that we are kings and priests. A direct reference back to what Peter says in chapter 2 of his first epistle, verse 9. We are a holy priesthood. We are a royal priesthood. We are king priests so that we would show forth the excellencies of God. Now turn with me also to Revelation chapter 5 in verse 10. Get that on the right page. And has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on earth. So that's once, that's twice in the book of Revelation that we are referred to as kings. Now let's go to chapter, uh, I'm sorry, as priests. My, my error, priests. Kings and priests, that is correct. Let's go to chapter 20. Verse number 6 in chapter 20. Now, just as a thought that crosses through my mind at this particular point, I've heard it said, and perhaps you have as well, many times, that we cannot understand Genesis without understanding Revelation. And the converse of that is true. We can't understand Revelation without understanding Genesis. And as Bubba started out in Genesis with the Garden of Eden, and Adam and Eve walked with God and served a priestly role. As we go forward and move from this age to the culmination age of the age to come, we are being groomed to be royal priests in the court of God to walk with him and to serve him in the kingdom yet to come. And one key thing about the book of Revelation I'll pitch right here, and this is worthy uh, of an in-depth study on its own merits. Revelation is an extremely priestly-oriented book. Our role in heaven, certainly in the millennium kingdom, will be keyed to our role as priests. And we'll jump to that here in just a minute. But let's go to chapter 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is he that has the heart of the first resurrection. On such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him 1,000 years. So that's once in chapter 1, that's twice in chapter 5, now a third time in chapter 20, that we are faced with the fact that we are king-priests to serve God in the millennium kingdom. Now, let's go to chapter 22, in verse 4. And all of this is to set the stage of what it is to be holy as he is holy. 
chapter 22. The book of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 4. Let me begin in verse 3, just for, for sake of context and continuity. And there shall be no more curse, referring to the curses of Genesis chapter 3. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. Guess who? That's us. We're servants. We will serve him. And they shall see his face. Stop, look, listen, and really let that sink in. And they shall see his face, God's face. And his name shall be on their foreheads. Uh, just for emphasis, we could spend a whole Kesey conference of 10 days of meetings just on this subject alone. But back it up just to pace. We shall see his face. What happened with Moses back in the Torah when he was called up to Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments and he wanted to look at God, but he could not see God. God hid him in the cleft of the rock to protect him from the Shekinah glory that by exposing Moses to that, that glory would have been instantaneous death. They could not handle it. Likewise, John says in chapter 6, no man, no person has ever seen God. But here, the priesthood, you and I in the age to come, have the penultimate experience be so holy as he is holy to see his face. Let that really sink in. What a powerful contrast of what it is to be a child of God, a king priest, a servant minister unto the holy God. That's what makes our whole relationship with God worthwhile. To see him face to face. Uh, my personal struggle, just to wrap my mind around what that means, how can I not, in awe and humbleness and brokenness, brokenness, not bow down to him because as a servant priest, I personally, you personally, we together as priests to the almighty, holy, holy, holy God get to see him face to face. What a privilege but now, the key is, we got to live like it. So how then should we then, then, then live to be holy as he is holy? Let's look at some practical steps. 
the priestly duties, just to get a, a concept of purity and, and, and remaining holy, remaining clean. Uh, if you recall reading anything of the priesthood in the, uh, in the Levitical uh, context, such a premium on what it is to be clean, uh, what it is to be unclean, how we maintain our purity. Uh, case in point, just as a, a point of illustration of the extreme that was practiced to remain clean and pure and holy, uh, we look at the offering of the red heifer. Uh, this is a supreme sacrifice that is required because of the rebellion at uh, the foot of uh, Sinai with the golden calf, and to remove that uncleanness and do so not only on that occasion, but going forward, they had to sacrifice a red heifer, but that red heifer had to be sacrificed outside the camp. So to accomplish that, as a point of reference, all other sacrifices were done at this point in time uh, in the courtyard of either the tabernacle or later on in the temple. But no sacrifices were offered outside the camp until the red heifer. So when David, as king-priest, established Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, they had to march outside the camp to offer the red heifer sacrifice. And the area where that was sacrificed from the Jerusalem temple was on the Mount of Olives. And so that the priests that were responsible for offering the red heifer sacrifice to remain pure, to remain clean, to remain holy, literally built a three-tiered bridge from the east side of the temple that looked out towards the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley. And this bridge was built so as the priests responsible for the sacrifice of the red heifer for the whole period could remain clean, pure, and holy in order to offer up that sacrifice. That was a way of life. So, now, moving from that reference in the Old Testament and having established a reference in the New Testament from the book of Revelation perspective in the future, in the Millennial Kingdom, let's come back to the here and the now and again ask that question, what is it that is required of us to be holy as he is holy? And we've touched on some of the key points. So, using Leviticus chapter 8 through 10 as our standard as to what it means to be holy. Praying. Somebody mentioned that earlier. Speaking to God is a relevant pattern and model that we, we have to intercede for others, to speak to God, uh, to express our heart. You know, I don't know how you may have thought, 
what Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, the various times that he went there, a number of times, what do you think he said to, the, to his father? What do you think they talked, he talked about? They talked about. I know one thing that John has recorded. I don't want to do this, Father. I don't want to have to die. I don't want to have to suffer. But not my will, Father, but your will. So when he was praying, he was seeking the Father's will, sacrificing, if you, if you must, uh, his will to do the will of the Father. Now, there's a principle there for us. We need to seek his will. So the question then begged, what is his will? That's where we look at the moral law. The Decalogue is an expression of God's moral disposition. That is his will. Another way to look at that, if you wish, as an example, when we look at the tri triune Godhead, the Trinity, God the Father is the will. God the Son is the action. God the Holy Spirit is the power. The will, the action, the power. So to know God's will is to know him and his moral disposition as expressed by the Ten Commandments. And as we know from John's Gospel chapter, the, the Upper Room Discourse, but certainly in chapter 14 and chapter 15, that moral will has been condensed into two halves of the same coin. Love God with all your heart, all your might, all your being, and then love others as you would love yourself. That is the full expression of the moral will of God. So when we look at what Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, not my will, but your will. And then how is the Lord's Prayer that's another model and pattern for prayer that we would have in Matthew chapter 6. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a truly interesting expression. How is his will done on earth as it is in heaven? Think about that a little bit. How is his will done in heaven? Any thoughts? By whom? <laughs> certainly, certainly the angels uh, are there. And this is, as we recall, there was a host of angels, out of the, all of the angels, that said, well, God, we're going to be just like you. We're going to be independent as you're independent, led by Lucifer and Horoske, and they went. And they've been condemned never, ever to be capable of redemption as we are. 
So those angels that remain are at least that company that are doing his will in heaven. And it is our obligation as now born from above believer priests recognizing that we have that role that we should fulfill God's moral will. And we talk to him about that. We study his word. And we talk to him about it. That's prayer. And if there are those within the family of God, and certainly those outside the family of God that need intercessory prayer, that's our role as a priest, to talk to God, representing these people to him, so that through us, he can respond to them to become that light showing forth his excellencies that would allow us to speak the full counsel of God so that those that have ears to hear can hear. You begin to get a glimpse of how, how this works and how we are to do these things in order to be clean, to be pure, to be holy as he is holy. What else? Sanctified is another word for holy. Uh, uh, we are to be holy. We are to be set apart as he is set apart. Holy is where he is or what he is. That's, that's in, in, when, when you're spot on. That's exactly what we're talking about in terms of, go ahead. Yes, he does. And, and to the goal that we should have is to know him. And there's, he has manifest himself in numerous ways. That's, that's what Paul has captured in, in, in the book of Romans. Boy, talk about laying it out like a lawyer, uh, like a high priest, the order the conciseness, the theological, the logic of thought, how God has revealed himself in nature. Uh, speaking for myself personally, uh, I am fascinated with the natural revelation, not just his creative beauty that we see, and I think of places like Yosemite, near and dear to our heart as a family, uh, for a host of reasons, and just to see that creative, but even more than that, I think of the earth spinning on its axis, revolving around the sun. We're not going too fast, a rotation on a 24-hour basis. We're not going too fast on our annual trip around the sun. We're not going too slow. Somebody described it as Goldilocks theology. It's just right. Not too fast, not too slow, just right. And you look at how physics and chemistry and biology, all of these things that we would call natural revelation and the precision that he has put into that so that it's just right and it stays just right, that's knowing God. That's really appreciating who he is. And then certainly on the spiritual plane, 
since we worship him, how do we worship him? In spirit. Yeah, he's spirit and truth. He is truth. Another thought. John 15. One of my all-time favorite passages. But in John 15, chapter 1, verse 1, up John 15, verse 1, he says, one of the great I am's. If you take the Greek and look at it literally as the the Greek text reads it, it says, I am the vine, the true. It's a noun. But when we read our text in the English, it usually says, I am the true vine. And that's a, that's a fair, grammatically speaking, that's a fair interpretation. But just on the face of the Greek text itself, looking at it, I am the vine, a noun. The true, a noun. He is the truth. We worship him in truth because he is the true. Just, again, showing the the fine points of his natural revelation, his special revelation, and that is holy. And we need to understand what that really is so that we can be holy as he is holy. Partaking of communion. Some people call it communion. Some people call it the remembrance. Uh, Others uh, call it the Eucharist and Actually, uh, if it weren't for certain uh, other ecclesiastical taintings, that is really good word because uh, Eucharist means to give thanks. And we're giving thanks for who he is and what he has done. Uh, some people call it the Lord's Supper. Point of it is, that our participation in that is a priestly function because he was a sacrifice. Sacrifices were handled by priests. And we do this in remembrance of him because of who he is and what he's done. So we use our priestly authority to worship him when we partake of the communion. And what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians? Don't do this unworthily. What does that mean? That means if we don't have cleanness and purity and holiness, we're drinking and partaking of his body damnation unto ourselves because we are unclean as his priests. And that, in the Old Testament, is a capital offense. So just, yes. It's unclean. That's yeah, being unclean and um, selfish and not thinking of others, caring for others who are not worthy of communion. And that's the practical side of what you were saying. Yeah, so for us to be worthy of celebrating that remembrance of the sacrifice, the obedient sacrifice. Remember what he said? 
not my will, Father, but your will be done. He was obedient unto the Father unto death. And that sacrifice and the remembrance of it is a very practical application of our priesthood here and now. And when we, I, I, I get how we can have interferences from other uh, ecclesiastical influences out there. But we are looking at the Word of God and taking it at face value that God is talking directly to us as His special people, His priests, on an individual basis. Every single one of us that have been born from His Spirit are given that privilege, are given that right, are given that duty, are given that responsibility to do things from that perspective. Now, another thing. Peter says a little earlier in, in his first epistle that we are to offer spiritual sacrifices. That's in chapter 2, verse 5. What's a spiritual sacrifice? Yes. True enough. Yeah, that, that's a fine point. I, I should not just gloss over that. Thank you, Bubba. Sacrifice is a priestly duty, and I don't want to, and I did not intend to gloss over that. Uh, that's the whole key point. I made the assumption that we were, uh, that was stated, but that is not correct on my part to make that assumption. We need to state it, that that is a priestly sacrifice. So if Peter is exhorting us even before he calls us a royal priesthood, he's calling us a holy priesthood that we would offer spiritual sacrifices. So what are spiritual sacrifices that are part of our priestly responsibility to do? And you 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 really honored onto it there um, to a spiritual sacrifice would be what it is to glorify God. Um, any word, any deed that is motivi- motivated by a desire to glorify God, and that's what you're saying. That is a spiritual sacrifice. We're glorifying God. That's, that's what he wants. He wants the glory. And he deserves that glory because he is holy, holy, holy. There's no one else like him. And just think about that for a second, that he is encouraging us. In fact, is he is commanding us to be holy as he is holy. And we do this by doing our priestly function by offering Spiritual sacrifices. Yes. Now, just 
to use a phrase we've used before, let's chew the cut on that for a little while to really understand what is required of us to offer spiritual sacrifices. Now let's up the ante just a little bit. And we're also to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. Uh, Now we're back to Paul in his treatise on Romans. And just to give a, a, a sense of context, he's laying out the theology extremely logically. And so chapters 1 through chapters 8, verse 39, he's laying it out. And we end up with what is sometimes referred to as the, um, uh, the golden chain, or the golden links of a chain. We're called foreknown, we're called, we are justified, we are glorified. And that's sort of where it ends at the end of chapter 8, and then he goes into a parenthetical statement of chapters 9, 10, and 11, and he's justifying his declared righteousness on on his physical seed, the nation of Israel. Then he goes, that's a parenthesis. Let's take our, our scissors and cut out chapters 9 through 11, pull it out, set it over to the side, because it's important, but now we want to link up chapter 8, verse 39, to chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, Paul says, because of all that God has done, all this mercy, all this loyal, loving kindness uh, that he has bestowed upon you, it is your reasonable service to offer yourself as what? A living sacrifice. How do we do that? Close. He says, by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, let me get technical for just a second right here. Transformed. Interesting word. You may recall from basic high school biology that uh, there's a process that certain insects undergo called metamorphosis. We know that uh, the worm spins a cocoon. It's in a cocoon for a period of time, and suddenly there's literally a metamorphosis of the cocoon opening, and out comes a butterfly. From a worm to the cocoon, it's transformed. It's metamorphosized into a butterfly. Interestingly enough, that renewing of your mind, that word is metamorpho. There's your metamorphosis. So how are we offering ourselves as a living sacrifice, a priestly function? You can't do that in God's order. He's immutable. That order doesn't change, as we've said before. What God has done in the past is both a model and a promise of what he will do in the future. So it takes a priest to offer a living sacrifice And Paul is saying, because everything that God has done, laying it out from start to finish, I beg you, it is your reasonable surface to be metamorphosized, to be transformed by the renewing of what? Your mind. That you would honor him. 
with what you think and what you say and what you do. That means we live with cleanliness, we live with purity, and we live with holiness because our mind is consumed by him. Just to wind it up. Oh, go ahead. Are you moving on to that? Uh, go ahead. Please. Yes. So when Noah sacrificed the animals after the flood, it went up in a fragrant offering of God. It was literally like an aroma. It was a sweet, a sweet savor. Yeah, he loved the action. Yes. And, and that, that same terminology is repeated again in Exodus and in Leviticus in relation to the sacrifices that are offered to God by the priests. Yeah. And so the action that is being described by Paul in Philippians is the Old Testament priest. Yes. Yeah, go ahead, uh, Hoyt. Yeah, if we're going to think of it in a practical way, can we say that the Philippians had the spiritual sacrifice of the burial offering? And Epaphroditus Offering living sacrifice first, And that, and that is a direct reference to the uh, renewing of your mind. We have to change how we think. We're dwelling on God. Uh, Bubba, what was that the passage again? I want to just make sure it's recorded. 4:18. Philippians 4.18 uh, is in another parallel passage of offering sacrifice, this one of a sweet savor unto the Lord, compared to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 as a living sacrifice. It, it does. It, it does. It gives us that priestly context that, we are, that we're after. Yeah. Yeah, 
And just, just to set a context to define what we're talking about by mind, this is what the Bible would define as heart. Heart has three components, mind, emotions, and will. So th those three aspects of our heart are very important because that's, that's where we're going right now. So if this, are what th this litany of things represents what we are to do to, to beseech him, to pray, uh, to, to understand what it is to partake the priestly role that we use when we partake of the Eucharist, the communion, the remembrance, uh, offering spiritual sacrifices, offering, offering living ourselves as living sacrifices, again, it begs the question, how do we do this? How shall we then live? Let's go there. And again, camping on the theme that has been redundant, but importantly redundant, what God has done in the past is both a model and a promise of what he will do in the future. So, how do we do all these duties in a priestly function and literally make it happen? Number one, let's refer to the Shema, the Hear, O Israel passage of Deuteronomy chapter 4, no, pardon me, chapter 6, verses 4, through chapter, uh, verse 9. Boy, verses and chapters. Got to get my brain in gear here. He lays it out. Hear, O Israel, your God is one God. And this is what you do to drive it into your mind. You love me with all your heart, all your strength, all your being. And you're thinking of my words. Put them on your forehead. That's key because we already referred to that. His name is on our foreheads in Revelation 22.4. We will see him face to face and he will recognize us because his name is on our forehead. Taking us right back to the Shema. And we do this. We think of him and his word during the day, when we get up, when we eat breakfast, when we go to work, when we come home, have dinner, go to bed, we're concentrating on his word. We are seeking to know him. It's a focused, specific commitment to studying his word, that he is one God, that he is holy, holy, holy. Now, it's interesting to note part of their renewing of their mind, that they did this Shema, and this isn't the whole Shema. The Shema is, is chapter 6 of Deuteronomy, chapter 11 of Deuteronomy, and chapter 15 of Numbers. All of that is what we call the full-orbed Shema that was repeated twice, daily, every day, by every Israelite. Now, that's what you call focused attention on the Word of God. So, our responsibility is to focus on Him through His Word. And it becomes an integrated part of our life. Then, in Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3, 
We are encouraged to meditate upon him. We've developed this in the past. Meditate. The Hebrew term, the verb is hagah, meaning to chew the cud. What we have studied of his word, what he has done for us in the past, having confidence because of his immutability he's going to do in the future, we chew that cud of his word. It becomes integrated into the very part of us. And then, we've already mentioned it, but in a slightly different light, let's apply it. We pray. We pray to him without ceasing. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 5, 17 and 18. How do we pray without ceasing? It's the practice of the Shema. We're talking to God. We're praying as is the model that Jesus gave us in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. We're talking about the kind of prayer he prayed in Gethsemane, seeking the Father's will and not his. We are meditating on him. We are thinking of his word. It becomes our way of life. And it's captured in its full essence in the New Testament, again going back to John 15. And the key word in that first 12 verses of John 15 is meno, is translated usually as abide, but the better translation is reside. He says, if you reside into me, I will reside into you. And when we reside in each other, you're going to produce fruit. You're going to produce not just fruit, you're going to produce more fruit. You're not going to just produce more fruit, you're going to produce much fruit. And that's because we are in him where our mind has been renewed. It's by focusing on who he is, on his oneness, his holy, holy, holiness. We are to be holy as he is holy. We meditate on his word. We talk to him. We worship him. And ultimately, by the cumulative impact of all of this, we glorify him that when we pass from this age to the age to come, as it says in Revelation 22.4, we will see him face to face. That's what makes the whole relationship with God worth it. And nothing we can do on our own merits that. But we have been rescued from slavery to sin. We have been given a priestly role to glorify God, to show forth his excellencies so that when he takes us to be in his presence, either after being raised from the dead or translated and meeting in midair to be with him for eternity, that at the end of the day we worship him, we glorify him, and we are sharing that Shekinah glory so that it's no longer a capital offense to see him face to face. What an honor, what a position, what a role we have as the believer priest that God has called us to. And as I sit and view this, 
Lord Jesus, come quickly. We're ready to see you face to face and fulfill our priestly function at the highest level possible. Yay and amen. Any questions? Any comments? That's a lot to digest, folks. How do we walk with him? Just thinking of Adam, the first Adam, walking with God and what he wrought with his attempt to be like God. Now, we're in God's presence, walking with the King of kings and the Lord of lords, glorifying the Father, seeing him face to face. Bubba. Yeah. The words, the priestly words that were used to describe their activity, work and serve, applied to them both. And it's only at the fall then is there a bifurcation of roles. And it's not just, it's not even that only the men could be, not even, even amongst men, only a few men. Yep. It's, the priesthood is back to what it was in the garden. Everybody. Yeah. So, and, and that's something to remember because we tend to associate priesthood with just Jews. Yes. But that's not the way it, it was originally, and that's not the way key point. it is now. Key point. It's everybody, male or female, Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter. There isn't that. There isn't a, yeah. There's yeah. No, there is no distinction. Yes. That's the point. Yes. Yes. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they they two totally different things. One is oriented towards worship. The pastor is a shepherd. He's the one that has responsibility for the overall welfare and certainly the spiritual welfare of of the body of Christ to whom he is ministering. He is their shepherd. That is a very important distinction to make between that role. And all of us being priests because of our personal relationship with God the Father through Jesus the Son, empowered by the Holy Spirit who indwells us. Everything we do, everything we think, everything we say is from the perspective of a priest because we have to remain clean, we have to remain pure, uh, we have to remain holy, that we are set apart where God is because we are God-like because his spirit literally 
indwells us. We are his temple. And that is a totally different concept from pastoring. Pastoring is a very important function. But we want to make sure we have a very clear line of demarcation between what that responsibility is and what our in personal, each and every one of us, priestly responsibility is unto the Lord. Yeah, yeah, we this this particular issue again uh, merits its own treatment for case of precise precise dis- definition and distinction, and we have to remember that scripture will interpret scripture, but we have to look at each passage in its intentional context and be able to take the clearer passage to reflect back on the more obscure passage to understand what is being said. Otherwise, yeah, we can uh, put the pea under the shell and move it around and make it say anything we want it to say. That's why we have to make sure that we are looking at the, the whole counsel of God and looking at its, what it, its intended in context is declaring it to say in light of the rest of Scripture. But that's, that's another subject, a very important subject for another day. But I want us to just conclude that we have a clear perspective of what it is for us here right now to be practicing our royal, holy priesthood as Peter identified it so that it's practice, 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 so that when we're on the other side in his presence and glory, still performing our priestly function, we have earned the right to see him face to face. And I say again, yea and amen. Let's pray. Father, again, we approach your throne with the reverence and holiness that you deserve and recognizing that we have as believer priests born of your spirit freed from the slavery to sin to become your royal holy priesthood worshiping you being a representative for you father that we would truly understand what it is to live holy and to be holy as you are holy
And Father, that we would practice, practice, practice doing your will, being obedient to you, Father, and thereby glorifying you. Father, to that end, we commit ourselves that we would be lights exemplary of you, showing forth your excellencies to this lost world. Father, that they too can see the light. Father, let us be that royal holy priesthood here and now, going forward, honoring you and glorifying you and giving you all of that praise and all of that glory. And we do this because we are yours through your Son, Jesus the Messiah, the Christ. Father, again, we say all these things and let it be through and in his name. Amen.